0: is uh, finding their seats. I'll just uh, review the announcements. We have the uh, men's prayer breakfast this Saturday, day after tomorrow at 7.30. And I've been, uh, the last couple of times we met, I started a series on what the Bible teaches uh, about biblical manhood. So uh, we're going to continue that this uh, Saturday morning as well, along with our time of prayer. Also, a reminder to pray for Vacation Bible School coming up on June 13th through 15th, and there's some sign-up sheets out in the back. And pray that our outreach efforts out into the community will uh, bear some fruit this year. Also, um, we're going to have a church-wide luncheon after the morning service on June the 5th, and there's sign-up sheets out in the Fellowship Hall for that. And then also a reminder to continue to pray for... Uh, Camp Arete, july sixteenth to twenty third trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades... But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Spirit, which is the real power for the Christian life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any known sin to God the Father, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the many ways in which you provide for us. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness, and and we have the potential to excel in our spiritual life in ways that even a few generations did not. Our, our ability to comprehend your word, to know it, to apply it, to, to understand it in a greater depth than ever before is... Uh, not because we have certain special skills, but because we're building on the uh, studies and the work of generations that have gone before. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to rely on, to inform us of who you are. May we not take it lightly, but realize that it is through your word that we are sanctified. As our Lord prayed, sanctify them in truth or by means of truth. Thy word is truth. And so it is through the study of your word that we are Uh, changed and transformed and father i pray that you would uh, strengthen us tonight as we continue in our study of your word and we pray this in christ's name amen well i'll just begin tonight with a a small anecdote and try to avoid being uh uh, have being justifiably labeled as somebody who's just critical and tearing things down but when we were in israel On our last trip, uh, on Sunday afternoon, we were invited, or we all went as a group, to a a church service, and it was, shall we say, not of the theological uh, orientation to which we are uh, accustomed, and we got in there, and I learned a principle that you can't really worship worship in song, unless you've got a good-looking blonde up there uh, gyrating to the music. So I th- thought that, I told Kathy Ayman's on Sunday that she was going to have to get in shape for this. But it was, uh, it was interesting to go. I took video of several portions of it just to have a record for, for pedagogical purposes in the future, and it was uh, it was really kind of interesting. One of the things I observed because I haven't been in a service that had contemporary or what would pass for contemporary Christian music in probably 25 years. And what used to go at, you'd be classified as contemporary Christian music in the 80s is really really good compared to what it goes for contemporary Christian music today. And one of the things I noticed as I was listening to the words and and uh, watching everything that was going on was that uh, there was a there was a thread that went through almost everything, and that thread was really the fact that nobody understood pneumatology or a lot of Christology, the indwelling of Christ, the presence of Christ that Christ is already here. These prayers and the music, calling upon the Holy Spirit to come and Christ to come, when they're already there, they're just a failure to understand these these basic fundamental doctrines, but also the things that were were sung, as part a sort of prayer, were mostly unbiblical. You don't find these things prayed for in the Bible. The most obvious example that they, people sang. Was change me, Lord, change me, Lord, change me, Lord. And I, I thought, I don't know of a single place where the Bible, where there's a record of a prayer of ch- change me or transform me, uh, any kind of verbiage like that. And I got out my uh, iPhone, pulled it out, and did a quick word search using accordance. It's nothing like that is ever found. Now, we're to be transformed and changed. Romans 12:2, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. We don't call on God to transform us. This is that mysticism that's part of holiness, charismatic theology that, that, that you just expect God somehow to reach down and tweak your volition, and you're suddenly going to be able to live the Christian life. And that God's going to change you. The scripture says we're sanctified by the study of God's word. That it's always through the word. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind, not by God tweaking us or, and changing us apart from his word and apart from the Holy Spirit. And those of you who know Dr. Ice, well, it was probably a good thing that Tommy was about seven seats to my left. Uh, throughout this, and that we did not look at each other throughout the entire uh, seeing. But we had, uh, there were about five or six pastors who were not from a, um, the appropriate theological background, and so they were all a little bit um, askance at what was going on and passing for, uh, passing for worship. And that doesn't even touch the message, and I'm not going to go there. Okay, we're studying redemption, and we started this last week because our passage in 1 Peter one eighteen talks about the fact that we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, and so redemption is the focal point of 1 Peter one eighteen and 19, and we began to look at it last week, but there have been... Three intervening weeks, so I'm going to review a little bit rather briefly to bring our thinking back to where we were uh, three weeks ago when we started this. I went back through my notes and did some searching on the website, and I haven't done an in-depth study of redemption since I taught a series on soteriology or our great salvation at Preston City Bible Church about 15 years ago. So this is an expansion of what I taught then. So other ta- I've taught this at other times, but they're more basic and, and streamlined, whereas uh, what I want to do in this uh, little sub-series of about, probably end up being about three or no more than four classes, is to really drill down on what the Bible teaches about redemption. This is such an important, important concept. And tonight we're primarily going to be looking at the Old Testament, and the primary word used in the Old Testament for redemption is related to the verb gaal, the noun form goel, which refers to a kinsman redeemer. And we'll look at that. So uh, that's the backdrop. First Peter 1 Peter 1:18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your aimless Conduct or your empty manner of life received by tradition from your fathers. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience. When you see Paul talking about the tradition of the fathers, he's talking about rabbinical theology. He's talking about what is at this point still oral law. It wasn't written down and codified until the uh, end of the second century when uh, uh, Judah Hanasi, Judah the prince, Uh, codified and wrote down uh, what has become known as the Mishnah. And so this is the tradition of the fathers. It primarily had the idea of that which was taught by the Pharisees would have been uh, the main idea there, but it is more than just that Uh, the tradition of the fathers, the terms of fathers refers to those who spoke authoritatively on the meaning of the old Testament text in the, um, In the Old Testament, you have the written law, but in rabbinical theology, there was the view that an independent oral revelation had been given to Moses on Mount Sinai and that there was an an independent oral tradition that interpreted the written tradition. And this was passed down from generation to generation. And it's not unlike uh, some of the views that are in Eastern Orthodoxy that the written revealed Word of God is to be interpreted in light of an oral tradition. So if you know somebody that's involved in the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, uh, any of the Eastern Orthodox churches, that's what they believe in. There's a dual authority, the oral tradition and and the written tradition. In Judaism, the oral tradition was called the halakha, which means the way to walk from the verb meaning to walk or how to live, and so this is a direct uh a direct uh, refutation of the kind of thinking that was present in rabbinic Judaism uh redemption was not based on the righteousness that tzedakah, that a person performed, that a person did, but it's based upon what the Messiah did on the cross, which is what's taught in, in Old Testament and Hebrew Scriptures like uh, Isaiah 53. And what we'll see tonight, before we finish, is that this is all the way through uh, Isaiah. The primary title that we see related to Yahweh, to the Lord, to in in. in um, Isaiah is the Lord, our Redeemer, again and again and again. So we'll uh, emphasize that when we get there. So the idea of redemption here, I pointed out last time, is one of the two main root words for redemption, lutrao, which means to ransom, to redeem, to purchase, to buy. All these words are economic words and indicate the purchase of something out of the marketplace. The other word that's used is agorazo from agora, meaning the marketplace, and the idea of purchasing a slave in the slave market is certainly one of the images. So in the Old Testament, from Genesis 3, We have the picture of the barrier, that man is on one side of the barrier, God is on the other side of the barrier, man is separated from God due to sin, but only God can solve the problem. And this sin barrier is composed of different bricks or different elements, and this is not an exhaustive list, but is a good summary of the different aspects of the problem, the sin problem itself, that is unacceptable to a righteous, holy God. Then there's the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death, judicial separation from God, and inability to have a relationship with God. Then the problem of God's character, that He is because He is righteous, He cannot have a relationship with creatures that are unrighteous. Uh, the idea of spiritual death as the result of the penalty, we're all born spiritually dead. So something has to happen to us personally to become spiritually alive the problem of our own loss of righteousness or lack of righteousness and our position in Adam. It is the cross that wipes out the barrier, and each uh, problem in the barrier is resolved by a problem related to, our, our, excuse me, a, a facet of the redemption, or excuse me, a facet of the work of Christ on the cross. So 1 Timothy two six. We learned that he gave himself as a ransom for all that 's another word the word we looked at a minute ago is lutrao. This is a form of that word anti lutron. Uh, you see the root there lutron, and it means to be ransomed for all. Who pairs the Greek preposition which indicates substitution this is goes back to this first aspect of sin. Which is that God takes care of all sin for all people, it is unlimited atonement, it is for all that is the extent of god's of christ's payment on the cross first peter four ten he is we're told that uh, we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So all men includes two classifications, believers and unbelievers. He's the Savior of all, but especially believers because those are the ones who have accepted it and are regenerate and are uh, justified. Second Peter 2.1 talks about false prophets who deny the master who bought them another redemption word. So he paid the penalty even for those who are uh, unbelievers. First John 2, 2, he's the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. This is another preposition in the Greek that talks about substitution, that he he died in our place. And the ultimate picture of that is the picture from the Old Testament of the sacrificial lamb when a person puts their hand on the head of the lamb and recites their sins those sins are transferred ritually to that animal and the animal is then killed in place of the person if you are interested and you should be watching a video if you go to sourceflix.com joel kramer's website he has an excellent video called the sacrifice and it really hits you because we're so divorced from the death of animals and the birth of animals, or life and death even in the home, that to see an animal that is totally innocent, without guilt, had done nothing wrong, that is taken to the altar and has his throat cut just because we sinned. There is a, a distinctive impact that that has, especially as we understand and apply that to what the Savior did on the cross. The penalty of sin is covered by two doctrines, redemption, which is what we're studying, and expiation. They have to do with the canceling of the debt. It is a true payment, a true substitutionary payment for all. That doesn't mean all go to heaven. Now, as I pointed out last time, there's two basic words that are used in the Old Testament in relationship to uh, understanding redemption. The first is the word padah, which is used 59 times in the Old Testament in 49 verses. So this is not the primary word, but the focal point of this word is the payment of a price. If you just understand redemption means paying a price, you've captured the doctrine of redemption. A payment is made. So that's the first the first word. The second word is the word ga'al, And the noun form I mentioned earlier is goel. This is the primary word that's used in the Old Testament. It's used 103 times in 83 verses. This is the uh, primary focus. And it's the idea of a kinsman redeemer. We're going to look at that in more detail this evening. And the key idea in kinsman redeemer is providing protection, providing security. But the goel emphasizes it, the... um, The role and responsibility of a blood relative to provide and protect blood relatives. Now, what's hidden in this word, and I didn't really catch this tonight, is there is the hint, the foreshadowing. When we read the title stated so many times, especially in Isaiah, the Lord, our Redeemer, this foreshadows that the Redeemer must become human. Because he's a kinsman redeemer, so embedded within this idea, even though it's not unpacked uh, per se in the Old Testament, there are certainly passages we've studied them before that predict that the Messiah is going to be human as well as divine. but that's hinted at in this word because for the Lord to be our redeemer, he must be become our kinsman. And this is why we believe that the Messiah had to become incarnate, had to become a human being and enter into human history in order to die as our substitute. For that substitution to be real and effective, it couldn't be a lamb, it couldn't be an angel, it has to be a human being. Like must substitute for like. Now in the Old Testament, there's two basic pictures that God uses to help us understand redemption. The first is the Exodus event, and the second, as we'll see, is the episode uh, that is the focal point of the book of Ruth related to her redemption by the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, uh, Boaz. Uh, So we'll look at that a uh, a little more later. So we have these two words, and we'll see how they are both used to describe the Exodus event. Now, that's interesting because if you think in terms of these words, they each have a slightly different focus, but they are synonymous in about 70% of their meaning. But it tells us that both words are used to refer to what God does in delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. Uh, he, It's called a gaal, a redemption, and a pada, redemption. And we'll see that as we go through, now we have to think about the, the Exodus event. That means that Israel for over 400 years has been a slave in Egypt. They have been held in slavery, and there's been no hope of any rescue or deliverance even though they have prayed for it. And then God sent a deliverer, who is Moses, who is a picture of the ultimate deliverer who will come to redeem us from the slavery of sin. And Moses was sent to Pharaoh. Moses uh, goes to Pharaoh to have him release, which is the concept of redemption, to release the people uh, from slavery. Uh, Pharaoh refuses to do that, he refuses to do that nine times. Uh, the 10th time, he finally relents because that is the, the greatest and most significant punishment, which was the, the death of the firstborn in every household and the firstborn of all the animals. And this is what is uh, remembered in the uh, Passover. And the Hebrew word for Passover is Pesach. And it and it focuses on the fact that the at the Passover time, every firstborn in Egypt, uh, the Bible teaches that the firstborn belongs to the Lord. Every first, the life of every firstborn was taken, unless a redemption price was paid, and that redemption price was the death of a lamb. And if a lamb was sacrificed and the blood was applied to the doorpost and the and the crosspiece, the lintel of the door, then the the Lord would pass over the house and the firstborn would not die. And so this uh, every Jew, every Israelite applied the blood to the doorpost of their house and no Israelite lost their life and none of the livestock lost, uh, died. But in the house of Egypt and the house of Pharaoh, the firstborn was taken. That's the backdrop. So we read this from the very beginning as God prepares Moses for what he will do. In Exodus 6, 6, he says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you, gaal. There's our word for kinsman redeemer. It has to do with not only deliverance but providing security at the same time. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And notice the word for deliver means to tear, to pull out. It's a violent term. And so this is the, a foreshadowing of what will take place through the ten plagues. The basis for that redemption is described then in uh, Exodus fifteen thirteen. In thy loving kindness, and this is the uh, Greek word hesed. In thy loving kindness thou hast led the peoples whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength you've guided them to your holy habitation. So the basis... For this redemption is God's faithful love. And the word chesed often goes back to covenant loyalty. And, of course, the Sinaitic covenant had not been given yet in Exodus 15. It is going to be given in Exodus Exodus 20. It will be the beginning. But it hasn't been given yet. To which covenant would this refer? It refers to the Abrahamic covenant because of God's loyalty to the covenant that he has made with Abraham that he is going to give him a a seed or descendants that are without number. So it is on the basis of his loyal love to that to that covenant, his faithfulness to that covenant that he redeems the people and he leads them forward Exodus 15:13. Then in uh, Deuteronomy we get a number of interesting passages in New De- Deuteronomy that fill out this understanding of, of redemption. And we not only have the word padah used, but the majority of the time we have, um, uh, that's the word that's used in Deuteronomy 7, 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Who are the forefathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you, padah, And this is the idea of paying the purchase price. Uh, You from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 9.26, thou hast redeemed through thy greatness. Uh, Again, it goes back to Egypt. That's the point I'm illustrating here is that this, the redemption from Egypt is the picture in the Old Testament that foreshadows or is a type of the redemption that Christ pays on the cross. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, again we see this, the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Uh, Deuteronomy 15:15. 15, 15, you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Deuteronomy 21, 8, um, a prayer to God, forgive thy people Israel whom thou hast redeemed. Deuteronomy twenty four eighteen that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. See, again and again and again, and the primary word in Deuteronomy is uh, padah. Now, Deuteronomy is close in time to the Exodus event. It's 40 years later because of the time that God took the uh, uh, disobedient generation through the wilderness. And this is for the new generation that would go into the land. But we see it repeated later in Nehemiah 1.10. It's a reminder in Nehemiah's prayer to God. He goes back and says, you have redeemed them by your great power. And what Nehemiah is praying is that they will be, he will be able to go back to um, Jerusalem and complete the building of the walls around, around Jerusalem. Psalm seventy-seven, fifteen: you have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. So these, and here you have both Pada and Gaal used, referring back to the Exodus. That is the foundational event for the New Testament. Now, what was the redemption price? It's the lamb. The lamb pays and is the substitute for the firstborn. Who's the redemption price? Who does the lamb depict? 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven. Remember Passover or Pesach is just one day. On the uh, Jewish calendar, it was the 14th of Nisan. The 15th is the first day of the Day of Unleavened Bread, which is a feast that lasts for a week. So that, that Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the second day, but in as the uh, scriptures uh, w- were using, you find usage, the first day of Passover often became uh, re- referred to as the first day of unleavened bread, though technically it was the second day that was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I told you on Sunday that just before we went to Israel, I had an email from our travel agent that we use a lot, and, and she's always very, very helpful and uh, taking care of us whenever we go over there, even if we don't have a group. She's always there, and she came to the airport to pick us up and and then to take us to lunch before we uh, uh, were going to go into the old city. And uh, she said something strange in the email, and I just hadn't connected because I had actually thought all this feast stuff would be over with by the time we got there. My original plan had been to go a week A week early and come back as soon as it was over and then somebody told me it was Passover so I counted up the days but I didn't count right and because the last day of unleavened bread was on Friday it automatically extended through through Shabbat on Saturday we arrived on a Saturday morning so she said if you want any bread we're gonna have to go to an Arab restaurant so we had to go to an Arab restaurant and uh, Uh, which which we did. So that's the idea. And the picture of leaven in the Old Testament is that picture of sin. And so Paul uses that imagery and tells the Corinthians that they need to be cleansed spiritually. And he uses the phrase, purge out the old leaven. That's just going to be an idiom for confessing your sin, dealing with the sin in your life. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. That's our position we are sinless positionally. We have perfect righteousness, but experientially we still sin. And then he says, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. There's that word again. So you hear the word Passover refers to the lamb. The term Passover can refer to the day. It can refer to the event. It can refer to the uh, Paschal lamb uh, itself. So that's the first illustration, the, the Passover. The second illustration that we see is in the book of Ruth. I want you to turn with me into the Old Testament to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a small book of four chapters that's sandwiched between Judges and First Samuel. Since we've been studying First Samuel on Tuesday nights, you ought to be able to find your way there. Just go to the beginning, and we'll come to uh, come to t- come to uh, the book of Ruth. Now I gave a quick flyover. Of Ruth in the previous lesson, but Ruth is the, really the story of how God provides out of His grace, and how God transforms lives. And it starts off with the story of of uh, uh, Naomi and Elimelech, who are married, and they have two sons, Malan and Killian, and they marry. They they leave Bethlehem, their home, and they head across um, to to Moab. And there, the two sons, Malon and Kilian, took Moabitess as their wives. And Elimelech then dies. And then 10 years later, both of the sons die. And Naomi, the mother, uh, becomes very bitter. And she wants her people to refer to her not as uh, Naomi, but as Mara, which means bitter. Now, I've known people... There's even a a news correspondent that I've seen on Fox News by the name of Mar. Why anybody would, I don't know why some people use biblical names to name their children anyway, because if they read the text, they wouldn't want to use those names, and that's one of them. Why would you want to name your child bitter? Never has made sense to me, but I've known people, they, they just like the sound of the word and they don't pay attention to the text. So we're going to see how she's transformed, how God has taken everything, and then he restores it uh, manyfold. And so they go back to Bethlehem. Uh, The one daughter who was uh, one that was married left. And then Ruth is the one who sticks with her mother-in-law and makes the famous statement that where you go, I will go, where you live, I will live, and your God will be my God, and showing that Ruth is definitely a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we see the word uh, go, the word, uh, kinsman, redeemer, or go, goel, which is the noun form, used several places in, in Ruth. Because what happens is when they go home, Naomi tells Ruth that that there's one way out of our predicament. They're starving. They have no way to support themselves. And this was a problem with with widows in uh, in the Old Testament. They were dependent upon the family, and if they didn't have any family, then uh, they were just dependent upon the community, and they could become very impoverished very quickly. And so the solution that God built into the law to provide for widows and for families was this concept of a kinsman redeemer. And the first use of the word is in Ruth 2.20, where Naomi says to her, Blessed be he of the Lord. This is talking about Boaz who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Ruth has already made his acquaintance and come back and told Naomi about that. And Naomi says to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our goel. That's translated close relatives, but it should be translated one of our kinsmen redeemers. Because a kinsman redeemer could be any blood relation, anyone in the family or extended clan who is, is a relation to a, a limeleck. R- Ruth 3, nine, Boaz is talking to Ruth and says, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a goel. So that is where she makes her request that he fulfill his responsibility as a kinsman redeemer. Now what I want you to do is turn to Ruth chapter four verse one, and we're just going to look at these initial verses to see how this uh, is used in Scripture to depict uh, the Lord, the the role of the Messiah and the role of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ruth four one, we read, now Boaz went up to the gate. Now the gate is where the power was. This is where the city council would meet. This is where the leaders in the community would gather together. This is often where where uh, municipal court would be held, where business transactions, title deeds would be uh, uh, exchanged. This is the 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 city city hall of the of the town. So he goes up um, he goes up to the gate, sat, sits down there, and behold. The close relative, there's that word again. The, another Goel, another close relative, another uh, cousin, distant cousin. We're not told, but he's a closer relation than Boaz, so he, that means he has prior, prior claim, prior opportunity to um, to redeem Naomi and, and Ruth. It says, behold, um, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, "Come aside, friend." Actually, the text doesn't say friend, it says just so-and-so, indicating his name. Come aside, uh, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city. Now, there's a precedent for that in the law, and that's what they're fulfilling, that this sh- should be witnessed by ten uh, men of the of the city. Actually, it's on the basis of statements like this that in Judaism you have the concept of a minion that in order to even have a synagogue, you have to have 10 men coming together as the core. If you've got eight or nine, then you can't have a synagogue. You have to have 10. And they would go to passages like this to show that that 10 was the smallest uh, group you could have in order to be able to make decisions and to establish something. So he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, uh, Naomi, who's come back uh, from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Notice the focus here isn't on marriage. The focus is on the property that belonged to the family, that belonged to Elimelech. said that she's she's come back, um, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. In the, in the law, in the Old Testament, what, would ha- what God wanted to preserve the wealth of the families and the clans so that when the land was divided up among the tribes and then the, it was further subdivided among the, the clans and then it was subdivided among the uh, families, uh, th- that land was to stay in those families, and it was not to be lost. And even when uh, it was sold in order to get out of debt, it would revert back to its original owner on the in the year of jubilee, every fifty years. So God is preserving their uh, their wealth and the property that they own, so they couldn't couldn't lose it. And so that's the idea here, is that this property was sold in order to get out of debt, and now it needs to be redeemed or bought back so that it is part of the family's uh, wealth again. So Naomi has sold the land. It needs to be bought back. And the first opportunity or the first responsibility goes to the nearest relative. And so Boaz says, if you will redeem it, that is, if you will buy it, purchase it back, redeem it, But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm next to you. And the man said, okay, I'll redeem it. But see, there's a string attached to this deal. And the string that's attached to the deal has to do with taking care of the family, the widow and the, the two widows as well. And that's where the levered marriage thing comes in. I'll, I'll mention that, talk about that again in just a minute. So um, verse 5, Boaz says, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now that implies that he's got to marry Ruth and raise up a descendant in the name of the dead husband. And the close relative, the Goel, says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he's going to pass on this opportunity. And then there's an interesting little exchange that takes place. Now, we would sign court documents, and we would have a a notary or officer of the court, seal the document, and then it would be placed on record. That's not how they did it. In order to signify that the deal was done, they would take off their sandal. Now the image that came to my mind as I read that was that we know the the Arab practice that if you don't like what somebody is saying, you take your shoe off and you throw it at them. We've seen that in, in the news. Somebody threw a shoe at President George W. Bush one time. That's the idea. Uh, but this is not that, that practice. You take off your sandal, and this would show that you have accepted and finalized the deal. It would be equivalent to what way things used to be in this country of giving a handshake. So this is a, a sign of acceptance of the deal. So what we learn from these passages is, first of all, that the Goel was a close male relative of the same clan within the same tribe. A clan is a subset of the tribe. The closer the relation, the greater the responsibility of the individual to act on behalf of the relation. So if you're a first cousin or second cousin, you have uh, a greater responsibility than a 20th cousin uh, twice removed or whatever. Leviticus uh, 25, 25 Uh, 25 really uses this a lot in Leviticus 25. You can take a look at that later. But in Leviticus 25, 25, we read, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, that's the goel, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, that is to buy the property back, then he would be able to do so. That's what the law goes on to say. In Leviticus 25, and and see, the point of this is that it provides an economic security so that if you go into debt, you have the opportunity to purchase what you sold. You're not going to lose it. It's not going to go outside the clan. Uh, It can stay within the family. It's a way of providing financial security, even in times of financial difficulty. Uh, then later on, we read in Leviticus twenty-five, forty-seven to forty-nine. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your do- uh, brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, the sojourner or stranger would be the um, the documented immigrant. Okay, is that politically correct enough? It's not an illegal alien. This is, and that's how it used to be translated, was an alien, someone who is not part of the family, uh, part of the of Israel. So if a sojourner or stranger, the uh, French would say the étranger, the, he's, they're strange. I always thought that was, that's how the French refer to foreigners. I wonder if they've become politically correct in recent years. If a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, this would be uh, becoming an indentured servant. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. He may be purchased again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Now I don't know how much this is still practiced today, but I am familiar with uh, a, a practice. This practice was still in effect after World War World War II. I know of a couple. Some of you know them. She was a uh, she was a German Jew who went to Shanghai, met her husband, who was a um, uh, Scottish. Uh, who was Scottish and was a member of the British Constabulary in Shanghai. After the war, they got married. They were dirt poor. They went back to Scotland. There was no work there. So they hired out on a farm in Red Deer. Now, if you know where Red Deer is, there's not much north of it except maybe the Arctic Circle up in Canada. And it was absolutely miserable. But by, it wasn't long, maybe a year or so, and her family who had been able to get out of shanghai after the war and got to new york was able to collect uh, money from the jewish community in new york in order to pay off that debt and so they were redeemed from that indentured servitude and then they came to houston texas which led to their uh, their salvation and the and the rest of the story goes on from there But that's the idea. So this idea of indentured servitude is still around and still practiced. So the first thing is the the male relative is the one. The closer they are, the greater the responsibility. Second, the redemption basically focused on land, the property, the inheritance, uh, which belonged to the family or the clan so that it would not become uh, lost to the family. Land, we're told in Scripture is the inheritance for God. God is the one who owned the land of Israel and all Israelites were given their inheritance and they were basically tenant farmers on God's land according to uh, Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-three, and 24, the passage that just precedes the one I've been uh, referencing. Uh, the law prevented Israelites from permanently selling the land outside of the family so that it could always revert back during the year of, of jubilee, so the land, if they needed to sell it uh, for a time in order to get out of debt, they could do so. So the focus here is not on marriage; the focus of the kinsman redeemer is related in all the passages to property now that's important to emphasize in relation to what goes on in in Ruth Third, the Goel had the responsibility to redeem relatives sold into slavery. Who had given up their land? Now this is partially what's going on with with Ruth I mean, and Naomi. So forth, the focus is on inheritance of the land, not on the not on leveret marriage. Now we see this illustrated and connected in a passage in Deuteronomy uh, chapter twenty-five, verses five through nine. So uh, you can turn with me there and make cross-reference notes if you wish so that you can find your way back the next time you're reading in Ruth chapter, uh, Ruth chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5. I've got it up on the screen if you don't want to turn there. These are various other laws, and this is related to the law for levirate marriage. Now, the law for leverant marriage was a way to preserve the inheritance within a family. So that if you're married, let's say you're you're, you're parents, you have a son, the son grows up, he gets married, and he is the sole heir. If he dies, then what happens to the property? Well, if you have another son who's able to marry his widow, then his responsibility would be to marry the widow, and their offspring would be raised to the name of the dead husband, so that his inheritance then gets passed on. It's all about protecting inheritance. You don't have inheritance taxes. You don't have property taxes in the Mosaic Law because those are unfair. Uh, that is unjust. There's no such concept in biblical biblical law. The idea is to preserve family wealth, not to take family wealth for the, for the use of the government. So Deuteronomy 25 says... Verse 5, if brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son. The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. It's all about family. This is divine institution number three, protecting the family. We have totally lost the family in this nation it's gone. I doubt if it'll ever come back. It's been destroyed through the tax system. It's been destroyed through legislation. It's been destroyed through the educational system. It's over with. Don't get an idealistic world thinking we can recover it. I don't think we ever will unless there's an act of God where this country turns back to Scripture. That's the only exception. No politician's going to change this. We have brought so many uh, people into this country, who do not have a framework of the divine institutions. They don't understand personal responsibility. They want the government to take care of them. They don't understand marriage. They don't understand family. They pervert all of them. And unless there is an internal change in the souls of Americans, we're not going to recover. No nation in history, apart from a mighty shift back to the gospel, has ever reversed course. It happened in England several times. It may happen here. I'm not saying it won't. But apart from a move of the Spirit of God and the gospel, it won't happen. It's not the result of elections. It's the result of a spiritual transformation. So that was the idea to preserve family wealth, not to destroy it. Then what happens is when this... um, when this takes place, uh, let's say, verse 7. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, that would be the ten men at the gate in, in Ruth 4. Go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. So there's going to be a hearing. But if he stands firm and says, I don't want to take her, that's the case of this, this other goel in uh, 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 related to Boaz. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot. See? That's where this comes from. Removes the sandal from his foot, spits in his face. No, that's not mentioned there in Ruth 4. And answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. So... Since there is an alternate, we don't have the spitting in the face because she is going to be, Ruth is going to be taken by Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. That's the picture. So the emphasis is in, in the kinsman redeemer is that the redeemer is a close relation. When that's applied to the Messiah, we understand that the one who redeems us must also be a human being. Second, it provides security and protection. Those are the two ideas in Goel. So let's look at five basic characteristics of the Goel, the Goel Redeemer that's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, the Redeemer was a blood relative of the one he was to redeem. And this is seen in the passages I mentioned, Leviticus 25, 48 and following, Deuteronomy 25, 5 and Ruth 3, 9. The Messiah must be a kinsman redeemer, a blood relative, must be a human being. Only a human being can stand as a substitute for another human being. Second characteristic, the redeemer must be willing to redeem. It's not forced upon them. They must make a free will decision. It must be a desire that they have to fulfill that responsibility. Uh, this is seen in Deuteronomy twenty five, seven to ten and Ruth three, eleven. And it's fulfilled Christ voluntarily left heaven to pay the price for our sin, according to Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. He willingly took on the limitations of humanity in order to submit himself uh, and obey the Father and go to the cross. Third characteristic. Uh, of the Redeemer that's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Redeemer must be able to redeem. That is, he must be able to pay the redemption price. Jesus Christ is able to pay the redemption price for our sin because he was without sin. He was perfect. He was impeccable. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So Christ could pay the price of our redemption according to Acts 20, 28, and 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, that's our passage. Fourth characteristic of the goel applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer must be free himself from the calamity. He can't himself be in debt. See, every believer is born in debt. We have a certificate of debt over us, a condemnation that did not apply to Jesus because of the virgin birth, this was why it was necessary to have a virgin birth, so that the sin nature would not be inherited from Adam through the male. The redeemer must be free himself from the calamity from which he must free the object of redemption. this is leviticus twenty five forty nine and Christ was free from sin second corinthians five twenty one and hebrews four fifteen He was completely free from sin. So, and fifth, he must act to pay the redemption price. He must make the decision, accept the responsibility, and then carry through. So those are five characteristics of the Redeemer that are applied to Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at some other aspects of uh, of this payment of the price. Just a couple of verses, though, on that last point, must act to pay the redemption price. We have three verses genesis forty eight sixteen the angel this is um, Jacob praying the angel who's redeemed me from all e- evil who is the angel now that should be a capital a didn 't come across in the translation I use, but in the new king James and others it 's an a it 's the angel of the Lord the angel of the Lord is re- usually refers to the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament in the new testament it 's the angel uh, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. But in the Old Testament, it's the pre-incarnate Messiah. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. He has acted, It's what Jacob is saying. That's the point. The redeemer must act. In Exodus six six, God acts to redeem uh, Israel from slavery in Egypt. Exodus 15.13, uh, God acted and redeemed Egypt. Now, the next point... Uh, The first point had to do with the language. The second point had to do with the two different uh, illustrations, uh, the slavery in Egypt and the the goel. The third point was five characteristics of the Redeemer applied to Christ. And then this is the fourth point in Isaiah 40 to 66. Isaiah 40 to 66, this is often called the suffering servant narrative. The suffering servant refers to the Messiah, not to Israel. The suffering servant refers to Messiah. We did a study several years ago in Isaiah 53 where we worked through those issues. Uh, Yahweh is the goel, the kinsman, redeemer, par excellence. We see this in a number of passages. For example, in Isaiah 41:14, do not fear, you worm, Jacob. God just isn't concerned with being non-offensive, is he? calling Jacob a worm because they are not able to save themselves. They're disobedient. There's one of Isaac Watts' hymns. I can't think of one right now off the top of my head, where it talks about Christ dying for such a worm as I. If you look in most modern hymnals, it says such a one as I. And I've heard people wax eloquent in their arrogance about how we don't believe in worm theology. We are human beings, and we need to have a good self-image. See, it's psychobabble claptrap that's applied to, to the Christian life. The Bible says we are on the level of a worm in relationship to God. We're incapable of being able to save ourselves. We are corrupt. We are rebellious. We are useless because we have rebelled against him, and we're not functioning as we should in terms of the imageness of God that we all bear. So God says, don't fear, you worm Jacob, because they're the ones who have been disobedient. says, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord. That's grace. Grace is God does everything for us, and we don't do anything to help him. He does it all. I will help you and your Redeemer, your Goel is the Holy One of Israel. Now, we're going to see this title again and again and again through Isaiah. He is the Holy One, the unique one of Israel. Isaiah forty-three fourteen, talking about how God is going to deliver them from Babylon. That would be another illustration of redemption in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, your Goel. For your sake I've sent to Babylon. Well, that go on. Let's just hit these again Isaiah 48 17 thus says Yahweh your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit see God's identity as a Redeemer indicates that he is the compassionate kinsman Redeemer if all these titles that we see in Isaiah foreshadow that the Messiah who will come is going to be related to us therefore he will be fully uh, fully human Isaiah 48, 17, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Then another passage in Isaiah 59, 19 through 21, focuses on the future redemption of the nature, of the nation. This is an application because Christ redeemed or paid the price objectively on the cross. It is then applied in the future to Israel. So redemption is used as talking about the result of what was accomplished on the cross. So it's not always seen as the object of paying the price for sin, but the result of having that price paid. Isaiah fifty nine nineteen. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. That's the east. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer, a goel, will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord, this is referring to the second coming when the Lord returns to, when Jesus Christ returns for Israel. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. Notice how this is connected. This coming of the Goel Redeemer is connected to the establishing of this covenant my covenant with them, my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring. This is talking about the new covenant when it is uh, initiated and instigated at the second coming of the Messiah. Then we have Isaiah 41.14. Again, um, talking about uh, Christ or God's provision for them. We already looked at that verse. Isaiah 43, one. Uh, but now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. So this is connecting the dots. The one who redeems is the creator God. The one who is the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, is the creator God of Israel, and they have been called by, uh, called by his name. Uh, again, this is in the context of not worrying, not being afraid. So the Goel provides security and comfort uh, for the one redeemed. Isaiah 43, 14, for thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Again, talking about their deliverance from Babylon. Isaiah 44, 6, the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. How many persons are there? Two. Wait a minute. I thought the Lord our God, Hero Israel, Shema Israel, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, uh, Yahweh Echad. That's the Hebrew. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the 1986 Tanakh gets it right. It says it, the Lord alone. It's not talking about a Unitarian monotheism. It's talking about, in the context, that Yahweh alone is the God of Israel in contrast to the idols of the nations. So you have two persons in the unity of the Godhead, Yahweh, the king of Israel, and the Goel, the Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies. And then it says, he's identified, I am the first and I am the last. Where do we see that language? In numerous passages in Revelation, beginning with Revelation one seventeen, when it, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to John, the Apostle John, on the Isle of Patmos, and says, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. He didn't just come up with this in Revelation one seventeen. It has a foundation. The Old Testament is the foundation for the new. If we don't understand the Old Testament, it's hard to understand a lot of stuff that's going on in the New Testament. Now, there's a heresy going on today I need to warn you about. And this is typical, especially in Reformed churches and in Reformed theology. We say that the New Testament fulfills the Old. So you have to understand the Old because it sets the framework and the foundation to understand the New. But in Reformed theology, the Old Testament is interpreted by the New. Now, that may sound good to people, but the problem is if the Old Testament is interpreted by the New, then nobody knew what in the world the Old Testament was talking about uh, until you got the New Testament. The New Testament would be the hermeneutical key to the Old, and and when you do it that way, you suddenly distort everything in the Old Testament, and you end up in some kind of replacement theology where you think that God is now permanently... Uh, disaffected from Israel, and that there's no longer a plan or purpose for Israel, which legitimizes anti-Semitism. So, another passage, Isaiah 44:22, God says, "I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you." So, redemption there in the Old Testament relates to uh, relates to the payment for sin. Isaiah forty four twenty three goes on. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. See, creation is engaged in praising God. This is echoed in Romans chapter 8, which talks about the creation presently groans, looking forward to its what? Day of redemption, which comes at the second coming. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he has he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Goel, your Redeemer. Again connecting him in this passage with uh, creation. Isaiah forty-seven four, our Goel, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah forty eight seventeen, the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Uh, Jeremiah 31.11 says that the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. Again, emphasizing uh, the role of God as uh, the, the one who purchases Israel and protects Israel. That's that role of the goel. And then that was all the fourth point related to uh, the protection of the goel and related to God's provision and and uh, protection for Israel. That was uh, all related to the passages primarily in Isaiah 40 uh, from Isaiah 40 through chapter 66. And then the fifth point, and this will be where I stop tonight, the Old Testament promises, uh, gives many promises regarding the protection of the Lord our Redeemer. You can just jot down some of these passages. Some may be uh, passages you've learned before. Psalm 19:14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Notice the juxtaposition of those two metaphors. Rock is security, protection, and redeemer, goel, again protection. Psalm 69:18 Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me. There's that idea of payment because of my enemies. Psalm 72.14, uh, he will rescue their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in his sight. It should be 75, 72, sorry, 72.14, yes, rescuing their life. 74.2, remember that congregation which thou hast purchased of old, which thou hast redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. Again, the idea of purchase. Psalm seventy-seven, fifteen: Thou hast by power redeemed the people. Psalm seventy-eight, thirty-five: God was their rock and the Most High God their redeemer. Again, juxtaposing the imagery of that protection from the rock. Two more verses. Psalm one hundred and three, four: Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion? That redemption is moved by the compassion and the love of God. And Psalm 106, 10, so he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. We have been redeemed. It's not a purchase payment to Satan. It is a payment to justice, a payment that justice is satisfied by paying the penalty of sin on the cross so that God then is free to save us and to bring us to himself. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study uh, these things this evening, to understand uh, that redemption is the payment of a price. It is a provision of security from one who is our kinsman, and that all of these images point to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Uh, Help us to gain a greater appreciation for all that we have in Christ.